All right, thank you very much. Uh, we, are, as you know, are studying First uh, Peter, and last week we finished chapter one. So, if I could get you to turn in your Bible or electronic device to First Peter chapter two, that would be delightful. Uh, and this is our third uh, lesson out of ten. And last week, uh, the author switched from uh, principles and, and blessings to everyone that's a believer, everybody that's in the church, to an application. And it's kind of a sense then, God has done so much for you, then you need to live the holy life. You need to follow Christ as Jesus taught, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And so in verse 22 of chapter 1, he says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another. So since you have the truth and you have been blessed, then you need to respond by transferring that lust, that love to your fellow uh, man, especially the people, your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Uh, and so today he's going to look at the the negative point, okay, that's what you need to do. What do you need to leave behind? All that old worldly stuff that everybody used to be involved in at one point in a time. And so I was trying to think of, you know, who's uh, a bigger part of uh, worldly evil stuff than the soup Nazi. <laughs> She took care of him, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, so in chapter 2 now, he's going to tell them, uh, he's going to use, chapter 2 of 1 Peter is really all about images, use in, uh, rich images and metaphors. So I thought we'd look at those before we actually went through the passage. So let's take a look at these. I hope everybody can see that. Uh, he starts out with, say, putting aside, and the, the image there in, in the Greek is you take something off and you get rid of it. And uh, everybody, when they came to Christ, you know, had some stuff that beforehand they might be ashamed of or that they need to get rid of or change. And so he's saying, take off all the old worldly stuff that you used to do um, some of you are such good people, you might have to go all the way back to your fraternity in college or something. I don't know. But, you know, there was always something in your background. Uh, most people, though, we're living in such a materialistic world uh, that, I mean, that's what everybody's all about in this world we live in. You know, more and more, you know, and the greed and the envy and I've got to have this. And, I'm, and uh, so he's saying, put all that aside. Take it off. Get rid of it. Discard all the worldly stuff that you had before Christ and now put on new garments uh, that are His and, and represent a completely different lifestyle. So putting aside everything, and He's going to list the stuff in verse 1 that, he, that we put aside that are just typically worldly stuff, malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander, you, you, you never run into any of that, do you? No, no hypocrisy or nobody ever lies to you, do they? Yeah. And so next he says, like babies hunger for milk. So the image there is a little newborn baby. 
that's just, you know, dying to get that milk, you know, and just going after it big time because that's what they live on and that's how they grow. That's how the baby's going to grow. And <laughs> that's actually Larry as a, as a baby. <laughs> and so, like babies hunger for milk, the Word of God represents the milk. We're to hunger for the Word of God because it's that important to our growth. Just like a baby needs that milk, we need the Word of God because uh, it's our spiritual food. The Word of God is our spiritual food that we need to grow. And if you think about the Word of God, uh, it's an incredible thing. He's talking about the Bible. He's talking about uh, this good book that we're studying today. And think about the uniqueness of this book. All, you know, uh, I think Paul said it well in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. He said, all Scripture, you know, all of this is inspired by God. And so God breathed it. You know, that word inspire means to, to breathe in, in. God breathed His Word, His truth, into the men and women that wrote the Bible. So even though they, their hands were the ones that wrote it down, God is the source. God inspired the people to write what they wrote. And so all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. So uh, every bit of Scripture is profitable. It's important in our lives. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God uh, may be adequate for every good work. The implication is there, without the Word of God, you don't even know what a good work is, right? And so everybody's out there doing what they might think are good works, but if God is the judge of that, His Word is necessary for us to even know what good works are or what he expects of us, or what we should be doing. And remember, what's uh, unique about God's judgment is that God judges what's in your heart as well as your actions. A lot of people are really big on actions, but their heart's probably rotten to the core, right? Uh, and so God is, is the judge, but he has... He has uh, given us everything we need in the Word of God to do good works, just to suit up. We need the Word of God. And so uh, think about the uniqueness of the Word of God. This Bible that you have here is actually not just one book. It's 66 different books, 66 different books written over a period of 1,500 years by all... 40 different authors, most of whom didn't even know each other. And, and it was written from three different continents. So I don't know what, you know, you had thought this was. Maybe a whole bunch of guys, people got, a bunch of priests got together at some point in time and wrote this together. No, this was written by individuals who were all over the Mediterranean world. And they wrote these uh, and... It was compiled after, later on as they um, 
began gathering up all the different material. Uh, at the time of Jesus, even, the Old Testament was not in a book form. It was separate scrolls. And so like in each synagogue, on the, in the synagogue service, they would, they would have scrolls that they would read from. And they divided the uh, Old Testament up into about five sections of the, the law, which was the Torah, and then you had the history books, and then you had the wisdom literature and the prophets. And so they would read something out of each one of those scrolls. Um, and then in the New Testament, you have 27 letters, different letters written primarily by the apostles or the people that were with the apostles in the case of Luke, per se. Uh, and those 27 letters were written at different times uh, by, different, uh, by different authors, 13 different authors in the New Testament. And uh, they were sent out to churches around the Mediterranean world, primarily between the late 50s and 60s A.D. So as long as uh, 30, 35 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Because that's when the churches were planted, and these are all letters to the churches. And during the next 150 years, uh, the churches began gathering up uh, these letters and put them all together in book form. So the church really invented what we call the book because they said, you know, we, we want to study all these together. And, uh, you know, they pretty much invented what we call a book now that you bind them together, you know, and, uh, and have something like we're looking at today. Uh, and it's, it's an amazing thing because all 66 books in the, in the Bible all have the exact same theme, which is the redemption of mankind. Mankind is lost, and God is working to redeem mankind. That's the, the basic theme that runs throughout uh, the entire Bible. Not only that, but the, the Bible is the only religious book that has a complete historical narrative from the creation account in Genesis all the way through the history of uh, Israel and then the New Testament for, and the church's formation. And it takes you all the way to the future times in the book of Revelation. So you have this incredible historical narrative from the very beginning to the very end of the world that's, that's in uh, the book of Revelation. There's nothing else like this. It, it, it's incredible. It is unique. It is awesome. Only God could do this. And, you, and we have the privilege of having it uh, as a resource and as study material. And so he says, uh, think, you know, really cherish it and have it and uh, realize that it is the spiritual food that you need to grow just like a baby needs milk uh, the Christians need the Word of God. And then thirdly, he references a living stone, which represents Jesus. Jesus is like uh, a cornerstone or a foundation for everything. Uh, he is the foundation uh, of the church. He's the foundation for salvation. And he's a salvation also in the sense of spiritual growth. It's all 
on the foundation of Jesus. It's all uh, about him. And so, as you see there, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone that everything else is built on, right? And there's a, a plethora of passages in both the Old Testament predicting the Messiah and in the New Testament talking about what Jesus is to us uh, today. And so, he is the living stone. Uh, and that idea, he's not only a foundation or a cornerstone, but it's alive and it is growing. The church is alive and growing. Remember, it started out, he had like the 12 guys that he appointed. And uh, when Jesus ascended to the heaven, he still only had 120 guys. Uh, you can see it in Acts chapter 1, there's like 120 people in the upper room. And uh, now that's grown to literally over, you know, a billion somewhere. So it's, uh, it's the life that Jesus uh, gives us. He's the cornerstone and the foundation for our salvation and growth. And then it uses the concept of individual stone. He's the foundation, the cornerstone. But we as believers are individual stones that are built on top of it as a building. The church, pretty good image, right? So the church, all believers in Christ, uh, represent the idea of the stones. Number four, the stones built on the foundation. We are each part of that as, as members of the church. And, and I say that no matter what church you go to, or even if you don't go to a church, uh, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then God sees you as a member of the universal church. Right? The whole world is made up, uh, and God knows who believes in Christ and who doesn't, and that is the church. And we are all stones that are part of the building that makes up that church. So believers are stones in the building that is God. Uh, and not only that, we are, number five, a holy priesthood. Now, what is a priest? What does a priest do? A priest is a mediator between God and man. The priest introduces and ministers to a man or, or woman for God. He's, he's God's mediator. And so originally, the uh, holy priesthood was given to Israel all the way back in Exodus 19. Uh, and yet, since they rejected their Messiah, now we are made up, the, the church is, of the new holy priesthood, in the new covenant, the new uh, deal of grace that God has made. So we are now uh, not only the building of God being built up, but we are God's mediators on earth offering up spiritual sacrifices. And what are those sacrifices? You know, that's an image in the Old Testament. The priests would come and make the animal sacrifices and whatnot. We, of course, don't do that. But what he means by we are the sacrifices, you now... Give up your life in a sense. Life before Christ used to be all about you and what you wanted to do, what you wanted out of life, what you thought would make you important, and uh, what you thought you would be fulfilled by. But now you have given that up and you follow Christ and you're interested in His program. See? That's why He told His disciples... If you, you must, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself, give up all your stuff in that sense, or your love for it, and 
take up your cross, sacrifice all your agenda, and follow me. So that's, that's what he means, uh, that, that spiritual sacrifice of, of putting him first in priority and following him and serving him now instead of just yourself. So God's mediators on earth offering up spiritual sacrifices are believers in Christ who are serving and giving up their lives for his. Number six, uh, he is the foundation, the cornerstone, is the one that the builders rejected, talking about Israel being the builder. So originally, God gave the, the stewardship to Israel to build this building uh, that would represent God to the world, to mediate between God and man. Uh, but they rejected his son. They rejected the Messiah. And so that's what he means by the builders, talking about Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And then because of that rejection, he became a stone. Think of him as this big cornerstone or a foundation. He became a stone of stumbling in the sense that by rejecting the cornerstone, they fall over it. So everybody uh, has an encounter with this cornerstone with this foundation and there's two responses some people become a part of it and a building stone on it imagery and others who reject it fall over it now just leave that up for a minute I want you to hold your finger there and turn to Matthew 21 verse 33 because Jesus told a uh, really important parable to explain what's going on here in 1 Peter, what Peter's talking about. Because the, after Jesus turned over the money changers, you're familiar with that story, went up in the temple and they were, they were raising all this money and selling animals and just doing all kinds of uh, business up there at the temple. And so Jesus came over and, and turned over the tables and ran them all out of there. So naturally, the chief priests, who are the beneficiaries of all this business that was going on, came to Jesus and said, by what authority do you do this? Don't you know who we are? We're the chief priests. We run this show. What makes you think you can order us around? By what authority do you do this? And so Jesus' answer to them, verse 33, was a parable. And it's, it's a really good one. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, a vineyard, and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers. So the, the, he, the landowner bought a choice piece of land. He prepared it completely. He even put watchtowers up to protect it from predators or anybody that would come in and steal all right, I've given this to you. I've given you everything you need. All I ask is that you pay me what I am due. The rent or the part of the crop that I am due. Right? And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves or his servants to the vine growers to receive his produce. Now, in this parable, we find out that he's talking about his prophets. So God gave this great blessing and honor and stewardship to Israel. And then he sent his prophets to them to straighten them out and get them on the right track 
And what, what did they do? How were they treated? The vine growers took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. So they got bad receptions. And if you study the life of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, you know what he's talking about. That's exactly what they did. When they came speaking the word of God, the reception they got was a punch in the face. And then most of them were martyred. My favorite one was Jeremiah. Uh, they couldn't shut him up. They put him in dungeons and he was preaching to the people in the dungeon and the guards and everything. And they said, we got to shut this guy up. So they went to a man-made cistern that um, was not being used. And at the bottom was just a whole bunch of mud, right? So they pulled the top of it, you know, like a well underneath ground, pulled the top of it off and just threw him down in there and then closed it up. And he sat in there, said the mud came up to the top of his chest. He sat there in the mud for three days like that in the cistern. I'm glad I'm not called to be a prophet. I'm not volunteering for that job, right? Uh, and so what he's saying is exactly the history of Israel. Exactly how it happened. And again, he's God incredibly patient. Look what God did is incredibly patient. He sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and he sent more prophets, in other words, to do the same thing, to warn them about what they, they owed their allegiance and their worship and everything to the Lord. But what happened? The same thing happened to them. They were beaten and tortured and, and martyred. And when the, So what did he do? Verse 37, afterward, the landowner, which represents God, sent his own son. Of course, that represents Jesus. Sent his own son to them saying, they'll surely respect my son. Surely they'll respect him and listen to him. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir to the land. If we kill him, we can keep the land. It'll be ours. We'll just take it. We'll seize his inheritance. And of course, uh, this represents, the vine growers represent Israel and how they treated uh, uh, Jesus Christ. And so they basically said, here's the guy that wants to change everything. We've got this great religion working and all the religious leaders and all the priests and all those guys are making a ton of money a ton of money, and everything was lucrative, and they had the position of power. They didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to change anything. They had it made. And so the idea that this guy would come along, Jesus would come along and want to change all that is out of the question. And the only way to shut that guy up is to get him killed, and so the crucifixion. And so they took him, they took the son, and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So Jesus is talking about himself. Well, these guys, they're not expecting this. so They're not really listening closely. Uh, so he turns to them and gets them to convict themselves. Look what he says. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? What do those guys deserve that killed all those servants and then even killed the guy's son? And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, said, why, I can't believe that. 
the landowner will surely bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. See what he's going here? He's saying because Israel rejected God's son, he's going to turn now away from Israel. Israel was his mediatorial people to reveal God on earth, but now he's going to turn away from them because of their rejection. They stumbled over the stone, and he's going to uh, turn to individuals all over the world who were primarily ended up being Gentile. The first church was all Jewish, but it ended up, at the end of the first century, is primarily Gentile, all around the Mediterranean world. And this was, he's talking about, the church. So this new group of people that God turned to, uh, turning because Israel rejected him, he turned to the formation of the church. So uh, Jesus said to them, yeah, you're right. He should rent it out to others. He should turn it over to others. And he read to them Psalm 118, which they'd be very familiar with. Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, Israel rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. So the Son of God that they rejected, He became the cornerstone, the foundation of your salvation, your spiritual life. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. So now all of a sudden they get it. He points right at them. The kingdom of God was yours for the taking. Jesus was offering it. But now it will be taken away from you and given to another people which, of course, is the church. So it will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. People who will respond to Jesus and who will turn and serve Him, uh, as it says here in the metaphor of sacrificing everything for Him. And he who falls on this stone, the foundation Jesus, will be broken to pieces. They'll fall over the stone and be broken. But, whomever, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, did they understand at this point? Let's, let's read and see. When the chief Pharisees and the priests heard this parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. They get it now that he pointed them out. You rejected God's Son. And they said, okay, that angers me greatly. <laughs> and they all tried to come together to grab him, seize him, and bump him off. But of course, it wasn't his time yet. But you get the point. Uh, the prophets had foretold that this, this foundation of our salvation, Jesus Christ, would come. But the nation of Israel would reject him. And so God would turn to a new people, the church, uh, for his program on earth, as his mediators on earth, to represent him uh, after the Messiah. All right? So, back to the list. So, uh, a stone of stumbling, Jesus is. 
Uh, and number eight, a chosen race, a holy nation. So now we, the church, are, are this new people that the prophet spoke of in Psalm 118 and that God has given his stewardship to now to represent him on earth. A chosen race, a holy nation. And of course, the amazing thing about what Peter's writing is, he is obviously Jewish, completely Jewish. Peter is. So he's talking about his own race of people. And he quotes from Exodus 19. Now in Exodus 19 is after they left Egypt, of course, crossed the Red Sea, you know, the miracles and everything were done. And Moses, God led them to Mount Sinai. And that's where God approached Israel through Moses and said, I want to make this people a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is God's offer to Israel back in Exodus 19. And so this is what Peter, a Jew, is writing and quoting that's now true for the church. It's now true for the, the very same thing. God has made the church his holy nation, his priests on earth. And we represent him in that capacity now. So number nine as that chosen race, that holy nation, since we're primarily Gentile, uh, he says, before this, those who were not a people, but now you are the people of God. So the Gentile world uh, had not known God, the God of Israel, and had not known their Savior, the Son of God, uh, but now they did know him. The church in the first century, did know him, and they became the people of God. God turned away from the rejecting nation and formed the church, uh, which are the new people of God. The responsibility once given to Israel is now given to the church to represent God. Pretty awesome. And it is a responsibility. It's an incredible blessing. And it's a responsibility. What did we do to deserve this? Absolutely nothing. What do we deserve? Nothing. You know, could go on and on. Uh, but out of God's sovereignty, I mean, just think, if you read the book of Acts, as Paul came into all those new cities that had never heard uh, of Jesus and proclaimed the gospel, God prepared their heart to believe and receive Jesus as their Savior. And the churches began being planted all over uh, Asia Minor and then Greece and then all over the Mediterranean world. And God was at work forming this new nation of people that we call the church. So before this, before God's activity to do this, we were not a people in that sense, but now... We are the people of God. And then lastly, number 10, the image that he'll use is in verse 11. says, now you in the church, because this is true, you who believe in Christ are now aliens and strangers in the world. And you're thinking, no, I've, I've lived here in Dallas all my life. <laughs> what he means is, 
We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ and not the world. The world and all the activities in the world do not control us any longer. They, we do not serve the world in that way as we once did. Now, uh, the church uh, is serving Christ and our citizenship, we're told many places in the New Testament, that our citizenship, our true citizenship is in heaven. God already has us in his book of life written down. Your name is there. It's a done deal. See? And so that's who we are now. We have a new identity in Christ. We are spiritually born. Okay, so now uh, look at your text. And uh, chapter 2 is a continuation of what he said last week in chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. He says, since you have in obedience to the truth, since you believe the truth, the gospel, and responded to it, uh, you have purified your souls. You've been completely forgiven and made righteous by God. Therefore, you should be able to pass that sincere love on to all the other brothers and sisters in Christ. So fervently love one another from the heart. Not just in actions, but within, from within. And not just because they deserve it, they don't but because God has loved you in this way and has given you a stewardship to love one another. You're His people on earth now. You're His chosen nation. This is how you react. And verse 23, he says, for you have been born again. You've been born spiritually. You're a new person in Christ. The old person in that sense is gone behind you and you're a new person in Christ. Uh, you're born not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. It's eternal now. We're eternal beings now. Uh, and that comes through the living and abiding Word of God. The Gospel that we believed. Alright? So since that's true, in chapter 2 he says, Therefore, putting aside all malice, like we said before, put it aside, take it off. All the stuff that's true about the world. Malice, you know, all the anger that's going on out there. Everybody's mad about everything and mad at each other. The malice, put that aside. All the guile, all the nasty language and terrible things. Uh, hypocrisy. You know, that's that act of uh, looking one way. I'm so happy and inside you're actually, I'd like to kill you. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. I'd like to take everything you have. Right? Hypocrisy. And we're all familiar with that. Everybody we know practically puts out, you know, a, uh, a pretense or, you know, tries to act one way when they're something else. Put all that stuff aside. That's, that's the old guy. Envy, slander, put it all away. But now, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word. Let that be what your spiritual food is. You really need it. You have to have it. Since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and coming to Him, coming to Jesus as you did, as to a living stone. He's that foundation that has life and grows and we can 
be a part of that building that's being grown up as the church. We're a part of, we're a stone that's a part of that. But that living stone, Jesus, was rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. So this is God's son that God provided, even though he was rejected by the majority of people uh, on earth, and particularly his own nation. You also, as living stones, you, uh, metaphorically, are stones that are built on that foundation and are a part of the church, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, God's mediators on earth. We reveal God to planet earth. That's what the church does. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to uh, Get rid of your old life and make your life now about Him. Sacrificing all the old stuff that was yours. We build our life now on Him. The rest of the world builds their life on career and possessions and money and what have you. But we are built up on that foundation, which is Christ, and we're built up for the purpose of being mediators and giving service to the Lord, to testifying to the truth, testifying about Him. Now, in verse 6, he quotes Scripture again, uh, the prophet Isaiah, for this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a, a uh, choice stone, the foundation, Jesus, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in Him shall not be disappointed. So whoever believes in that uh, that cornerstone, that foundation, which is Jesus, will be fulfilled. This precious value then is for you who believe. So God has done this and given it to everyone who will believe in the gospel. Uh, but there's something there about it for those who disbelieve as well. And what's that? Chap verse 7. The stone which the builders rejected, so those who reject him, what happens? They became, this became the very, the stone which the builders rejected, they rejected it, but Jesus became the cornerstone of the church anyway. God's building anyway. And it became, Jesus became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So they fell over it. It offended them. And uh, when you think about it, uh, what, why would they do that? I mean, why would anybody, when you read all the stories about Jesus and the miracles he did and the wonderful things he said and uh, the great teaching and all the fulfillment of prophecy, why would they reject him? Well, it's very simple. It has to do mainly with the original sin, of course, which is pride. Because for most people... Life is all about me and what I do. People are not interested. Think, here comes Jesus, a humble, suffering servant whose message involved convicting them of sin and their need to repent. So when you leave here, go up to somebody you hardly know and just say, you are a terrible sinner. And they're going to probably say, oh, thank you so much. I just appreciate your candor. No, they'll probably get as far away from you as they can if they don't punch you out. Right? People don't want to hear that. 
They want to hear, oh, I'm a good person, you know. And, and the gospel message was, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because that's true, they need a Savior. God had to do something. And out of love, remember last week we said God's justice required that his love would provide for that justice. He had to have justice, but because he loved us so much, he provided the means by which we could be saved. And so uh, they fell over him. They stumbled over him. Uh, and for they, they that stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this their doom is appointed. Anybody who, who uh, rejects him. And then verse 9 and 10, as we said earlier, is the titles that were originally given to Israel in Exodus 19 are now transferred by God to the church. God's program now is, is moving, operating through the church. He is revealing himself to the world through the church. So he says to the church, to believers in Christ, you are a chosen race. Quoting from Exodus 19. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That, the purpose that you may proclaim the excellencies of God who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So because he's done so much for you and he's brought you out of that worthless life that you used to have with no meaning and no purpose and no future, you now are out testifying and proclaiming him to others. And you are in the light. You know the truth. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And all by God's doing. And so, because of this blessing and because of this stewardship, he's saying put aside all that worldly stuff and take up the love of God and be his servant in the world around you. So privileges that I saw in uh, second, I mean, excuse me, first Peter uh, two, number one, believers are separated to Christ as a holy nation. We have a special relationship. That's quite a privilege to have a special relationship given to us uh, by God to serve Him and glorify Him. Second, uh, possession of Christ means that He has purchased us. Jesus took the initiative, and we, we saw earlier last week, that He bought us with His own precious blood. And so we have that new life based on what He's done. Thirdly, the illumination, the light. We've seen the light, right? We were in the darkness. The rest of the world's in the darkness, We've seen the light. The illumination we have in Christ is the ability to understand God's Word. I hope being in this Bible study, or maybe sometimes you're sitting in church or in some other Bible study, and you're studying and it just clicks. The light bulb comes on. And you may say, God, I never saw that before. Oh, that's so awesome. God has opened up His Word, His truth to you. He's turned on the light bulb that the rest of the world is in dark, but you are now in the light because you have the truth. The world is in darkness. You are now in the light. Fourthly, 
mercy and compassion from Christ has been received by the church. Um, we're not deserving more than anyone else, but because God's love, we've received that mercy through Christ's atoning work on the cross. And then fifthly, we, we get to proclaim Christ. We have the honor, we have the stewardship, the opportunity to proclaim Christ to the world around us. There's no higher privilege that God has given us than to be spokespersons for Christ. Imagine that. Little old us. We know the truth. The whole world's looking for the truth. Can't find it. God has revealed it to us and let us be His spokespersons for Christ. For God to choose undeserving sinners like us to speak for Him, I think is off the charts amazing. So, Again, we're part of God's building, uh, and God doesn't need you, but He can use you. And the opportunity there is for the taking, to be part of that building, part of that church. Um, so, when you think about all the servants, the prophets, and everybody that served God in the Bible, think about... Abraham. Everybody's got an excuse, right? You know, a lot of people say, well, gosh, I don't have time. Uh, you know, as soon as I get my business in order, I'll do this or that. Wait a minute. Abraham was too old. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was a braggart. Moses couldn't talk. Gideon had no faith. Elijah was scared to death. And Lazarus was dead. <laughs> So what's your excuse? <laughs> Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word. How powerful it is. How illuminating it is. Thank you for giving us the truth. And I pray that you would convict each of us of our new identity in Christ and our stewardship to serve him and glorify him. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.